Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to our virtual roundtable this morning, which we're presenting in association with our wonderful partners at Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA. We'd like to thank them for their support of this program and all those at FMC that they work with us on. For those of you who have missed our previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archives at www.usafmc.org sounds. You can check out our other programs and subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast on either Spotify or on Apple. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have a question at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen and fill out your name and question. If we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. The vice presidency has famously been described by John Nance Garner as not worth a warm bucket of spit, and few vice presidential debates have produced the long-lasting historical impact or the easily recalled zingers of the presidential events. This year, however, things are a little different for the second name on the ticket. President Trump would be term-limited if he's re-elected, and for many political observers, the likelihood of former Vice President Biden serving only one, one term if he's elected seems high. So as Vice President Michael Pence and Senator Kamala Harris stood on the stage last night, many looked at it as a dress rehearsal for the main event in four years for at least one of them. However, the debate had another important role to perform, potentially that of a palate cleanser. For many on both sides of the aisle, the first and possibly only presidential debate remained an unpleasant experience. It was hoped an orderly, civil, some would call it normal vice presidential debate concerning policy and promise would help make up for that, if only slightly. So what were the results of last night? Did either candidate present a case that would change the mind of American voters? Was there more civility and normalcy in the back and forth? Were any points scored that would rally the partisan bases? Was anyone's similarity to John F. Kennedy presented as unacceptable? More importantly, did last night's debate move the proverbial needle? We have a great panel to analyze last night's action and our moderator will introduce them to you. Bob Cusack is the editor-in-chief of The Hill Newspaper, which has covered Capitol Hill since it was started in 1994. Cusack began his newspaper career a year later and joined The Hill in 2003, becoming manager, managing editor in 2004. He's won awards from the National Press Club and Society of Professional Journalists and appears regularly on cable and TV news as a political analyst. We look forward to his questions today and to the illuminating answers of our panel. Bob, the floor is yours. Okay, you hear me now? Great. Um, Quite a night last night, quite a morning. Uh, this morning already news of uh, uh, the next debate of, of uh, President Trump indicating he's not gonna be participating in the virtual uh, event. Um, but we're here to talk about last night's uh, debate. So let me go through some housekeeping. Um, again, I wanna welcome everyone for doing this and, and thank you for asking me to do it. I wanna thank uh, FMC, the Congressional Study Group on Japan and SF, SPF USA, Sasakawa, Peace Foundation USA, and a special thanks to the chairman and president of SPF USA, uh, Dr. Sadahiro Akamoto, for his commitment and, and support to the FMC. Um, before we get into this one, I'll talk about the, the, the next one. This is a series that FMC is running. Uh, the next one will be held on Friday, October 23rd, so mark your calendars. That will feature Congressman Elliot Engel, Democrat from New York, and George Holding, a Republican from North Carolina. That is the next morning after the third debate. So hopefully that debate uh, will happen. So you have a lot to, uh, to talk about. Um, I'm going to quickly uh, introduce our two great panelists today who are experts on uh, uh, the vice presidential uh, candidates. Uh, and then uh, we'll go into kind of, I'm going to lay out what we're going to do 
uh, after that. Uh, first off, uh, Congressman Vic Fazio served uh, from 1979 to 1999, senior member of the Appropriations Committee, committee and also served in Democratic leadership. Uh, Congressman Luke Messer, Republican from uh, Indiana, chair of the Republican Policy Committee, knows Mike Pence very well. So it's very interesting. We have, uh, we have uh, former members uh, from the states of the candidates uh, last night. So here's the overview of how we're gonna run this. Uh, panelists will begin taking questions from the audience in the second half of the program after we get it started. Uh, anyone with a question, you can go into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and pose a question to our uh, special panel. Uh, they'll be collected and then we'll be answering them again in, in the second half. Uh, please, when you're submitting your question, uh, sub, uh, submit the organization that you represent. Uh, now I'm gonna turn over for opening uh, remarks uh, just for a couple of minutes and then we'll get into questions that I'll ask and then we'll get to your great questions. Uh, uh, Congressman Vic Fazio, do you wanna start us off? Well, thank you, Bob. And I wanted to say hello to Luke. I've gotten to know Luke mostly through Zoom in recent uh, months. I want to also welcome our former member colleagues and the Sasakawa Peace Foundation and our study group. They have been great supporters of the former members, and we appreciate their help and their uh, willingness to work with us through the, through the tougher years, but now in, in the good years for FMC. Um, the debate last night was, I think, maybe the last debate has been indicated. Uh, it certainly was a contrasting debate in the sense that there was while uh, conflict and talking over, uh, nowhere near as much uh, uh, tumult and shouting as occurred in the first debate, which I think threw most Americans off. Many turned it off in the first half hour. This was more than just a normal vice presidential debate, as I think uh, Paul has said. These two people may well be running for president at some point down the road. We have two gentlemen in their 70s who are contesting this election. And I don't have any doubt in my mind that both of them are prepared for the job. But this debate was tough on Kamala Harris because, no question about it, um, our vice president is a practice media performer. Somebody called him uh, Rush Limbaugh on decaf. And he's very effective in the way he uh, prepared himself and interacted with her. I thought she remained positive. I thought she was effective in rebutting and making her own points. And I do think that uh, while she may have been the underdog going in, she more than held her own. I frankly don't see major impact on the election, though. I think it was just a, a way to introduce two important future players to the American people. Uh, Congressman Messer, your opening remarks on your thoughts on last night. So I'm unmuted now, right? Yes, we can hear you. Um, well, first, Vic, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Bob, you, you look like a congressman. We, we're as retired congressmen, don't look like one. Uh, but anyway, we, we appreciate the opportunity. Um, Vic covered a lot of it. I mean, look, this is a, uh, a different kind of VP debate, not only because uh, both these gentlemen are older, and, and as you mentioned, Vic, they, they, uh, both of the participants last night are almost certain to be running for president at some time in the future. But I mean this in no ominous way, but given the age and health of the two uh, sitting members, it's not impossible these folks would be serving as president if they were elected as vice president. And so I do think that gave last night a little bit of a different feel. Um, in addition to being the Republican policy chairman for this group's 
interest. I have the distinction of serving in the congressional seat that Mike Pence served in for 12 years. He was my predecessor in Congress. When I left Congress six years later, his brother Greg became my replacement. And so I know the Pence family pretty well. In fact, I debated Mike Pence in an open congressional primary when I was a young 30-year-old uh, 21 years ago. And that is uh, when Mike and I actually became friends uh, during during that debate process. I know that's rare in uh, congressional campaigning, but for us, it was a relatively civil um, primary. You know, I, I think the kind of two overarching uh, thoughts I have from last night from Mike Pence's perspective is this, as, as Vic mentioned, Mike is a very practiced debater. After being in an open seat a congressional candidate in 90 and 92, so this is now 30 some years ago, Mike had a radio show for 10 years. And any of you who may have read the, the book about Ronald Reagan's GE years, where it said he went and worked for GE, gave speeches all around America and sort of homed this uh, uh, speaking style that, that appealed to everyday Americans. Mike Pence knows how to stay on point. He knows how to work on his feet. Um, and I think you, you saw that last night. I, I also think though, to the extent it had any impact on the election, I think it, it, it may help shore up the Republicans' position with seniors. You know, historically, seniors have gone to the Republican side. They tend to be more conservative. And, and some polling was showing Joe Biden polling almost even, if not slightly ahead, with seniors. And I think a lot of that, it, some of it may have to do with COVID and, and the concern folks have with COVID. But I think some of it is Donald Trump's style. Look, I, I grew up in small town America. It's not only a big C conservative place. It's a little C conservative place. It's it, You don't brag. You don't run around brag. You don't drive fancy cars or live in big fancy homes. And a lot of the way Donald Trump behaved in that last debate just stylistically, I think, set off little C conservative folks all across America. Mike Pence last night seemed like what a presidential candidate is supposed to seem like uh, based on what we've you know seen on prior standards. And I, and I think in that way, helped both himself and the ticket last night, too. Uh, my first question is going to go to the birthday boy, Congressman Fazio. Uh, happy birthday. Um, you know, America is really getting to know uh, Senator Harris. Uh, obviously, they've known Mike Pence, or certainly the Washington scene has known Mike Pence because he was a, a congressman, he's a member of leadership, he's a governor, and he's been vice president for the last four years. Senator Harris has been more new to the scene. So what, do you, what can you tell our audience about what drives her, what makes her a leader uh, and, and maybe tell people something they don't know about Senator Harris. Well, Senator Harris has uh, emerged from a very competitive political environment in Northern California, first to be district attorney of San Francisco, and then a very competitive race, both in the primary and general, to become attorney general. And as she said, running the second largest uh, AG's office or justice office in the country after the Department of Justice. But you have to go back to her childhood. She was born to immigrant parents, a Jamaican father, Indo-American mother. But she grew up with a single mother and decided, I think, early on that she would have to scrape and fight in order to make her way in the world. And she's learned to do that. She has identified with the African-American community. She came back to Howard University to go to college and has been an active member of a sorority national sorority that has a chapter at Howard. And I think part of her relationship with the black community was 
uh, something that she chose to emphasize. And I think it will be one of the things that guide her in her uh, time in public office, because I think she knows what it's like to come from a very, you know, um, difficult background. She wasn't poor, but she certainly wasn't in any way affluent. And she got where she got on her own guts and brains. She's a very passionate person. And I think that passion has come out in the hearings that she's uh, been involved in in the Senate Judiciary Committee. But I do think that uh, she brings a lot of intelligence and experience to modify and amplify that intelligence to the job that uh, she's seeking. I think she'll play a very key role in the administration if uh, the Biden-Harris team is elected, in large part because she is young, vigorous, and is willing to hit the road. And I think that will be part of what the administration will need from her. Yeah, you know, let me just add real quick. Can I say Kamala Harris I, or, or Kamala Harris? I, I thought it was impressive last night. Forgive me for this sort of cynical quote, but, but it is one I love. Woody Allen once said, sincerity is the key to life. Once you learn to fake that, everything else comes easy. But, but I do think in politics, it's very hard to seem authentic. Studying up on debate points, getting your policy right, these are all things that any bright person can do. But coming across authentically and seeming like a real person, and, and I think, is, is a challenge. And last night, I think Mike Pence won the debate on points if you were scoring it in that way. And I think, obviously, he did his job for the president. But I think she came across as a real talent, not only in this debate, but in other debates, and very formidable in the future. I mean, obviously, if she wins, she's the setting vice president. But beyond that, I think even if she doesn't, she's got a big future. Um, about Mike Pence, uh, Congressman, you know, my, uh, 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 my uh, uh, colleagues that I went to, to college with uh, and, and, and uh, do fantasy football with and play golf with, you know, they, they don't know the Mike Pence that I know. I covered him during uh, the, the Bush administration. He was a rebel uh, in Congress. He took on George W. Bush and almost took down a big health care uh, bill on Medicare prescription drug benefit. Um, and, and now he's extreme, you know, he's extremely loyal to the president and, and the president, I'm sure, appreciates that. Um, but, but tell me a little bit about Mike Pence that, that you know, that our audience would, would know, because what, when I tell my buddies that he used to be a rebel in Congress, they're like, you're talking about the same guy, Mike Pence? Well, let me go one step further. I tell you, if you talk to his friends from high school, they will tell you he was the class clown growing up. And, and one of the things a lot of people don't know about him, if, if you've heard him speak in more intimate settings, He's, he's not quite rich little, but I mean, he, he is very good at sort of impersonating people. And I have no diet, doubt he could do a good Donald Trump uh, if, if, if he was asked to do it. He, he's not going to do it for a lot of the reasons you described. He's a loyal guy, and I think he has a sense that this president doesn't want him doing any Saturday Night Live skits uh, impersonating him. But yeah, when he was in Congress, I mean, he was considered uh, someone, I mean, Mike Pence has always said, I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. And um, that was been a statement of his faith, but it's also been a statement when he was in the battles with leadership, his attitude was always, hey, I'm a conservative first. I mean, I think one of the challenges for Mike Pence, not only uh, going, I mean, frankly, going forward, I think win or lose the upcoming election as he looks to his own chance at the presidency is there is a little bit of dissonance uh, for the conservative movement with who Mike Pence has been in this era of being the dutiful vice president and who Mike Pence was before that a person that, you know, frankly, wasn't afraid to throw um, stones. And, and um, I think last night, he, 
he certainly came across uh, as a conservative on on uh, key principles. But yeah, it's uh, he, he would have considered himself more of a of a of a Willie Nelson uh, than a Pat Boone, right? If you're going back in the music world in his career in Congress, but boy, he's been kind of a Pat Boone in the, in his service uh, with. Yeah. Congressman Fazio, you know, bipartisanship, uh, the FMC is a bipartisan organization. Uh, we have not seen a lot of bipartisanship in Congress. And this is not just for the Trump administration. It, go, it goes back. And really, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. If you go back to uh, Bill Clinton, every president since Bill Clinton in their first term, and that would include George W. Bush, uh, Obama and Trump in their first term, uh, when they came into the White House, they also had control of the House and the Senate, which is not really an incentive uh, to, to strike bipartisan deals. Have there been bipartisan deals? Yes, criminal justice reform passed. But sweeping legislation like Obamacare is kind of slammed through no Republican votes. The Trump tax cuts passed with no Democratic votes. Um, but, so my question is 2021. You know, it used to be you'd have elections in this country and they would say, OK, the people have spoken and now we're going to do the people's work. What are the prospects of bipartisanship uh, in 2021 in, in both scenarios under Biden and or Trump? Well, there's no question that Joe Biden is a guy that knows the Senate extremely well. We don't know the outcome of the election as to what the Senate will look like. I mean, there are projections that show the Democrats could win by a couple of seats. Um, and that's really uh, something that will tempt people, I think, to be more partisan in the way that the Senate operates for the majority party. But I think Joe Biden's instinct is to work across the aisle. And the real question is, will Mitch McConnell be willing to do that, assuming he's still the leader of the Republican Party? The question of, for example, improving and updating the Affordable Care Act is something that I think would be right at the top of the agenda. And if there's no willingness to do that, we push more in the direction of getting rid of the filibuster and doing things on a more party line basis, the way it's always been done in the House. But I do think that there are many members of the Democratic Caucus in the Senate who think it's more important to get some consensus because we, you know, we pass a law and then we repeal a law. I can I think of net neutrality and how often we've gone back and forth on that issue. If you want to do things permanently in this country, you need some modicum of bipartisanship. And so I'm hoping under Biden's guidance the Senate will be a place that will allow compromise to occur, um, allow legislation to go into effect that has some broader support than just partisan support. And I, I think that uh, is possible given his background and experience. Some people think he's naive and uh, frankly uh, should throw that concept out and govern in a new way. It will be interesting to see how he chooses to take it. But a, but a quick follow up on that. The the progressive movement is very strong. Uh, wasn't strong enough to win the nomination. <clears throat> Bernie Sanders didn't win. Um, but, you know, fracking came up in the debate last night uh, and, and Joe Biden noting that he doesn't complete completely support a, a ban on all fracking um, federal lands and private property is a bit of a distinction there. But on, on the you know, Ocasio-Cortez, who is a progressive star, tweeted out, you know, fracking is bad. So what about the, let's say, let's say, let's assume Biden wins here. And let's say, you say he has control of the House and the Senate. House is very likely Senate, as you mentioned, possible, maybe uh, slightly in their favor, but, but no slam dunk. 
Um, what about the intra-party tensions in the Democratic Party? You know, where have you seen the party go and how, how will Joe Biden and Harris deal with that? Well, it's been a uh, long history of a Democrats uh, not always being the most organized party, not always being the kind of party that uh, will tamp down the factions. We've had factions in our party forever. They've come together because of a central problem, the Donald Trump presidency. But I think you'll see immediately after the election, particularly during the period when we're actually uh, putting people in cabinet slots, a lot of conflict between the various elements of the party. And Joe Biden will work with a progressive interest, no question about it. But at the same time, I think he has his own mind about climate change, for example, and he'll take his own approach to those problems. Um, no question, the Democrats uh, are not a uh, group of people who always enjoy being uh, on the same side. They often like to conflict uh, with, with policy issues. And I think, you know, Luke just mentioned uh, Mike Pence in, in the House on uh, that drug benefit, Part D. The, the Republican Tea Party has to some degree taken over the party, but in the Democratic Party, there's still a real um, conflict, I should say, between the moderates and the progressive base. Well, Rick, I, I got I was with you until the very end there, which I just have to say, I, I had this co this conversation with some colleagues in the house when I said, "Get ready for your Tea Party," and that's what you guys are experiencing now. Let's let's see what happens over the course of the next year or two, or cycle or two, to see if if uh, this progressive movement doesn't become the dominant part of of, of the Democratic Party. I, I think there's a chance it will. First, let me start with a note of optimism, Bob, on that point. I think. Um, given the crisis we face as a nation with, with dealing with COVID and the economic crisis that's really unprecedented that's come out of that, I think it's almost certain that you'll see some bipartisan uh, compromise at the beginning of a new administration. And less frankly, it's just not needed for some of the reasons you described, where one side has all of uh, the, the levers of power and, and they can, um, can, can push it through. I'm going to note that with a, a little bit of pessimism on this. Look, we can all talk all we want about uh, bipartisanship, but the frank, the frank truth is there's very little political reward for your average member of Congress or even, frankly, anymore, U.S. Senate for being bipartisan. In other words, uh, luminaries talk about the need for bipartisanship, but in elections, the folks that are tough and fight tend to be rewarded right now by the public more than the folks that, 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 that are able to demonstrate some kind of compromise. And so until that shifts and the public wants to see bipartisanship, uh, I think you're going to have some of those challenges. And then issues will matter. Look, I, I think one of the stories that's, even though it's been mentioned, a little underreported from last night, is the unwillingness of the Biden-Harris uh, ticket to make clear whether they're for court packing or not. Look, if the Democratic Party decides they win an overwhelming election and they decide to add members to the Supreme Court, you will see an explosion that will make it almost impossible for there to be any kind of uh, bipartisan compromise. I already think their unwillingness to clarify that is going to bring conservatives home in states where they may well have had a chance to win a Senate seat. I mean, there's a lot going on in North Carolina, for example, right now with the personal challenges of, of, um, of the Democratic candidate there. But court packing is not going to go over well in places like Montana and North Carolina and Georgia, where they're competitive in a couple seats. 
And I think it's something they better figure out over the coming weeks or it's going to hurt them. I think it's a, it's a very it's a very good point, uh, Congressman Fazio, that there's such a big policy issue on the filibuster and packing the courts. They've completely dodged it in the first debate, two debates, which is an indication they've made the decision it's better to dodge it than answer it and divide their party. Uh, will they be able to to make the some next twenty some odd days without clearly saying where they stand on a, on a key two key issues? Well, if you're as good as uh, the vice president was last night at dodging issues, you probably will find, you know, the Democratic ticket stepping up to that challenge as well. There's no question there's tremendous frustration in the Democratic Party right now about, the, as the nominee for vice president said, the court packing that's been going on at the district and appellate level. Uh, the majority vote ramming through people with very little judicial experience because of their ideological positions. And I think you've seen tremendous unhappiness about the inability to take the Garland nomination up for consideration, not even giving him meetings and hearings, and then having this last minute uh, Amy Comey Barrett appointment. So there's tremendous anger on the Democratic side, and that is motivating them far more than I think Republicans are motivated at the moment about the court. Uh, I think sometimes people in politics grieve losing someone more than they uh, feel good about gaining someone. And Republicans were terribly upset with the Scalia passing and Democrats now with RBG. They want someone like that on the court. And I think Republicans have, by their um, strength, frankly, and their cutting edge approach to governing, you know, people say Democrats bring a uh, casserole to a knife fight. And I do believe on the Republican side, the courts are their number one priority. It's their way of locking in their point of view, their outlook on life for the future. Yeah, I think Bob makes a fascinating point. Economists say, you know, um, we, it's the human condition. We, we grieve loss about twice as much as we, we appreciate gain. And so it, it changes the way that uh, people behave in all kinds of areas. <clears throat> I, I would just say this. I think it may well be to the interest of the Biden-Harris ticket to stay ambiguous on court packing. I do not think it is to the interest of their ability to win the Senate. I, I think it's net negative. Now, whether that means they don't win the Senate, who knows, but it will hurt them in key competitive races because you're going to hear the mantra over and over, each Senator being asked, each Senate candidate, Will you support court packing? And I think it's going to be hard for them to say definitively that they won't when they've got a presidential candidate who won't answer that question. Well, look, I know Republicans are desperate to come up with some issues other than the virus. And this is one of the gambits they've obviously agreed to take. The whole well, this, election so far has been about the virus. So we need a new distraction. And this is it. Well, no, this is a distraction you've handed them. I mean, all you have to do is answer the question. Just say you're not going to do it. And and then, and then it won't be a controversy. Congressman Messer, uh, the, the Hill and, and other publications basically uh, cover two big questions, and that's uh, uh, do they have the votes to fill <clears throat> the nomination and who's going to win? Uh, the media, pundits, pollsters got it wrong in 2016. If you look at the data, however, in 2020, if you believe the data, uh, the data and polling uh, shows it's, it's worse for Donald Trump than it was in 2016. So 
over the next month, what, you know, we have a, a campaign that is, is hobbled by COVID-19. A lot of the uh, team at the, at the White House as well has COVID-19. What does the Trump administration need to do? Because I agree with you. I think both, I agree with both of you. I think both candidates did very well last night. There was no knockout punch. But, but it seems to me that the Trump-Pence uh, team needs to change. They, they need a game changer. Uh, what do they need to do? I mean, what about this decision not to do the next debate? Is that, is that a smart move? Yeah. Well, well look, I, I, um, if I was as good at per, uh, you know, uh, political strategy and prognosticating campaigns, I'd be in the Senate right now. I lost the Senate campaign. So I can't tell you that, that I know for certain. But I, I do have um, a couple thoughts. One, I, I'm not a, a poker player, but you know, uh, the, the analogy a lot of used is Trump drew on an inside straight last time and hit them all, right? put it differently, he defied gravity. And, you know, everything that Vic and I know about politics in our careers says, if you're the incumbent, you get the number, right? If, if you're polling in the 40s, and your opponent is polling ahead of you, everything in political history says, the person who's the incumbent, the voter knows you. And if you're not ahead, or at least, you, you know, over 50%, even, you're in a lot of trouble. And so somehow for him to win, he's going to have to defy gravity again. And um, I, I think a lot of this cake is baked to be candid with you. Like for Donald Trump to win, we almost have to be polling incorrectly in all of these states. And he already kind of has the base of support out there that is, um, you know, going to, to bring him home. I, I don't, know if that's the case, but I would tell you, I think the Democrats have made a couple big mistakes. Um, you know, Donald Trump is the president. He's responsible for our response as a nation to COVID. Presidents are responsible for the economy, good and bad. Um, but the, the issues that will bring conservatives home is stuff like, gosh, we're going to change the complete power structure and stack the Supreme Court and, 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 you know, uh, change uh, the, the liberties of our nation because of the next winning majority. I mean, as you can probably tell from the way I've spoken today, I, my style is a lot different than Donald Trump. There's a lot about the way this guy behaves that troubles even me. That, that alone, a lot of folks that um, are out there that are potentially uh, voters, that, but the pack in the court troubles me a lot too. Congressman Fazio, same question to you. What, what do the Democrats need to do? I mean, Hillary Clinton basically played it safe down the stretch. Uh, uh, four years ago yesterday, the Access Hollywood tape came out and everyone said in Washington, this race is over. The, the Hillary Clinton campaign went into a complete prevent defense. And, you know, you just can't be cautious and win the presidency. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to take risks, especially when you're, when you're up. Uh, and you're talking about possibly winning red states like Georgia and Texas, at least competing in there. What, what, what do you think the Biden team needs to do over the next month? Well, you remember right after, uh, you know, the problem with the Billy uh, Bush tapes, we had uh, WikiLeaks, you know, the presidents uh, immediately turned on uh, the, the Russian influence that came through uh, our London and, uh, you know, came right into the middle of that message. So the president knew how to blunt that and did so quite well, I think with the cooperation of Assange. 
But let's be honest, um, he is in real trouble right now, as Lucas said, he's on the ropes. And I think Joe Biden is coming stronger and stronger and stronger. He's going to be more visible. Uh, he's going to travel more. And I think he's going to continue to prosecute the case about the failed administration's policies that have brought us to this point where we have the highest death rate of any developed country in the world. And people have to answer the question, how did it get there? Particularly with uh, the Bob Woodward tapes telling us exactly what they knew when they knew it. I think Kamala Harris will be much, much more prevalent on the campaign trail as well. Uh, you're right. You don't sit on your lead. You have to be aggressive. You have to go out and prosecute the case. And I think Democrats are reaching peak at just the right time. Hillary Clinton taught us a lesson, and that is don't coast. Take nothing for granted. Remember, it's an electoral college vote. Every uh, key state matters. But when the Democrats have as much money as they have right now, and they're able to compete in Texas and Florida and Georgia and even South Carolina. Uh, and the president is defending those states as well as attempting to make a comeback in the industrial states that he won last time. I mean, they're really in a, in a deep hole. And there are much, much uh, fewer people who have not made up their mind at this point, far fewer than was the case last time. Uh, and I do think that uh, we're not going to see the Democrats resting on their oars. I think they know they have to win over those last few undecided voters. But we're going to hear socialism. We're going to hear communism. I think that's so over the top and so lacking in credibility that if they take that route, uh, they will continue to lose the suburbs and the people who they still hope to convince at the last moment. And, and you know, look, I agree with a lot of what Vic said. I, I would just say... Uh, again, I think it's why it's a misstep to not clarify this court packing, because that doesn't require you to use any hyperbole. All you have to do there is listen to what Kamala and Kamala and uh, Harris and Joe Biden have said. They're going to risk dramatically changing our nation's power structure in a way it's not been done in our entire history. I, I think it's a big misstep. I think they should clarify it. You know, I, I, I would also note, though, that in last two of the last three elections, if you look at just the window of the 16, 18, and, and 14 election, major outside events did influence the wave of the election. Um, in 16, obviously, Comey's release and, and a lot of what happened with the FBI, and then now supplemented by Assange and all the things that Vic mentioned. In 14, uh, the, the ISIS beheadings, almost certainly, if you talk to Greg Walden and the leadership of the House uh, Republican Caucus, we were in a much more difficult position in 14. And then as that event started to happen, obviously no one controlled it, but the debate changed and suddenly in suburban districts, security became a much bigger issue. And we won seats that probably we wouldn't have won just a month earlier than that. So it is um, almost certain that in the, in the coming weeks, there will be more curveballs, and they could change the, the balance of, of uh, where we are in the race. Bob, I, I think it's important to remember Republicans have fought elections over Ebola and over the caravan coming from Mexico. There's always an issue that is injected into the race at the last minute in order to kind of firm up their base and not let people stray. And well, I, Vic, I, I, might, I expect this is a similar issue. Vic, I might mention uh, Republicans don't have a monopoly on using issues uh, for politics to win elections. I think uh, that is a product of our system. <laughs> Um, we're going to open up to questions in a few minutes, but Congressman Fazio, I want to ask you about in a Biden administration, 
do you anticipate a lot of the candidates who ran for president are going to be in a Biden uh, uh, cabinet? Like, do you think Senator Sanders would be in a cabinet, in a cabinet, or Warren or Buttigieg? Uh, I, you know, I, I doubt Sanders would be, but but I could see you know the other two and maybe some more. I think we're going to see an interesting uh, discussion of who should be the Treasury Secretary. Uh, Lael Brainerd's name has come up recently as someone who might satisfy the broad uh, spectrum of the party. But obviously, Elizabeth would like to be uh, in the administration. I think her job, the one she would have in mind, is, of course, the Treasury job. But, you know, given the fact that we have a Republican governor in Massachusetts, that's a little more complex. But um, it, it would depend, I think, on the, on the size of the Democratic majority, should there be one, and how that would play out. Um, no doubt that Pete Buttigieg, I think, who played uh, Mike Pence in the debate prep, um, will have some role. I think he's very popular with a Biden team. And uh, I don't know whether it would be Veterans Affairs or some other element of uh, the administration that he would like to be. He's a broad-minded, very thoughtful guy. He could do a lot of different things. Um, I don't see anybody uh, leaving the Senate like Amy Klobuchar. I, I think people who have House and Senate seats who've been key in this campaign would think long and hard about giving them up for an administrative role. I, I think of Karen Bass, for example, who was one of the people in competition to be on the ticket. Um, they have potential futures in, in the two bodies that they come from, and I don't think their interest necessarily in taking a temporary role in an administrative uh, position. But um, there will be people who are seeking uh, to find another place to go hang their hat. Uh, we'll see whether or not their rapport with the Biden team is strong enough to make that happen. Well, a couple quick observations. One, I, I think Senator Biden clearly values, or I'd say Vice President Biden clearly values Senate service. He spent a lot of time there. And I would be surprised if he didn't have some former senators who were part of this cabinet, if there is one, obviously the, the fleet of governors as well. But I, I think uh, the Jeff Sessions seat in Alabama is a cautionary tale about appointing uh, sitting U.S. senators, <laughs> even in places that you would think would be very safe, right? I mean, most folks, it's hard to find a more partisan state of either color than Alabama. Uh, and yet when yeah. Jeff Sessions became the attorney, attorney general, you lost that seat. So I think if you're a setting Democrat U.S. senator, your chances of being appointed to the, the administration are very low. <laughs> Well, I, I hate to say it, but the loyalty of the president to the man who was the first one to endorse him in Jeff Sessions <laughs> is one of those examples that tells you a lot more about the man's character than almost anything else. Hard to quote. Yes. Uh, okay, let's go to uh, uh, questions from our audience. Uh, our, our first one is no stranger to FMC, immediate past president of the organization, former member of Congress, Martin Frost. As a question for the panel, uh, Martin, if you can go ahead and unmute your microphone and uh, ask your question. Well, I think I'm unmuted. Can you hear me okay? Yes. First of all, uh, both of the panelists are terrific uh, today, and we I want to compliment them. And, of course, Vic is an old friend. Vic and I kind of followed a similar path. We were both uh, chairs of the DCCC, both chairs of the Democratic Caucus, so we draw on very similar experiences. Elected the same year. <laughs> That's right. And we're the same age. Yeah. <laughs> the... Um, um, we're the same age as Biden also, may I add, for those people who are trying to figure it out. Um, you know, Vic, um, it seems to me 
that the, we, the press and people following this just skipped over one thing. The threshold of this debate was for Kamala Harris to establish her credibility as a serious person who could be president or vice president. Clearly, she did that. The Republicans, I think, were hopeful that they could turn her into an angry black woman or to Sarah Palin. Well, they didn't do either one of those things. She's a very substantive person. And I think that makes a big difference. And my guess is the whole question of this may be the last we've heard about the vice presidential candidates. I, I believe that the whole rest of the election will focus on, uh, on Trump and Biden. The vice presidential candidates will be out campaigning, don't get me wrong, and they'll, they'll they make a good impression. But uh, I think this was their day in the sun. She passed the credibility test with flying colors. That's my Martin, I agree with you. I think if you looked at the two faces on the screen all during the debate, she kept a smile on her face. She looked positive. She didn't look argumentative. She missed opportunities because I don't think she wanted to take them to get in a back and forth with the vice president, except on those occasions when he clearly stepped over the bounds, not answering the moderator's questions, but demanding she answer his questions. I think she actually handled him as well as you could, because as we've said, he's a very deft uh, debater. So I, I totally agree with you. She did more than, you know, pass the test. I think she set herself up for future candidacy. Yeah, I would say in polling after the um, campaign, uh, folks were asked, do you think these people are qualified to be president? What I saw only the most partisan of people thought either one of them wasn't qualified. In other words, they were both like 65, 30, yes, they're qualified uh, to be president. I think they both did what they had to do for their ticket. And I think they frankly both acquitted themselves well for their own careers. Yeah, uh, former member Lauren Smith has a question about international alliances. Uh, Congressman Smith, make sure you're unmuted and uh, go ahead with your question. You uh, might be muted. Yes, he is. It's it's a it's a it's one that that ties me up uh, as well. All right. Well, why, why don't we go to another question, uh, Congressman Smith? We'll come back to you. Uh, former member Dennis Eckert has a question for the panel. Uh, Congressman Eckert, if you can unmute and uh, ask your question, then we'll go back to, to Congressman Smith. Uh, you're both muted. <laughs> yeah, it's that. Uh, Former but, congressmen don't find it easy to be muted at any time. So this must exactly. be anguish that they're going through. <laughs> uh, OK, well, how about this? How about uh, let me let me ask a question, uh, Congressman Messer, uh, while, while we figure out the technical uh, difficulties. Um, you know Mike Pence very well. When you become vice president, there is going to be questions about whether you want to be president. And I was coming up with Republicans who could run in 2024, and I got to at least two dozen Republicans who could run sure. in 2024. Um, and obviously, a lot of it will depend on what happens on November 3rd, as far as his chances, I think. And, and, but, but certainly, he's not going to be the next president, no matter what, the next nominee, no matter what. Do you think he'll run in 2024? And how difficult will it be? Because will he have the Trump coalition? Remember, President Trump has not endorsed anyone in 2024. He kind of dodged that question on, on, on Fox a while back. Well, well look, I, I say this very respectfully to Michael, but yeah, the, the chances of him not running, 
it would only be if for health reasons or something like that. If for family reasons, it was not possible for him to run. But yeah, he, he's going to run in 2024. I, I think uh, the question will be the first question for Republicans if if Joe Biden wins in 2020 is does Donald Trump run in 2024? I, I don't know that anybody knows for sure the answer uh, to that. And, and so uh, I'm pretty sure that if Donald Trump runs, he'll support himself in 2024. Um, I, I think outside of that, of course, there's folks like Mike Pompeo, who's a friend of mine from Congress, and Nikki Haley, who I don't know as well, but obviously, just to name a couple of the stars of the current administration, plus governors all across America. And, and then, look, I, I think the reality, you're seeing it increasingly in Senate races, at congressional races, both money and fame. Um, I, don't, I don't think Donald Trump's going to be the last person that comes out of uh, the entertainment world who's a part of this, too. So sometimes I think I'm really one of the most remarkable parts of the 2020 race for the Democrats, I thought, was that no one like that emerged to be part of, uh, of the field. Mm-hmm. Well, look, don't forget the, uh, the president's children. You know, I, I think all of the, the Trump kids have aspirations, maybe even his son-in-law. There's no doubt about it. Then you've got Tom Cotton and other people out there, you know, attempting to uh, inherit the, the Trump mantle. And we'll have to see what the president's uh, financial situation is like, maybe even um, his legal situation is like in four years, because I think everybody realizes once he's out of office, he's fair game to both state and federal prosecutions. And I do think it, it is important to say presidents matter, leadership matters, and Trump has changed. I mean, in part, he was reflected a part of where the Republican base was. But this sort of economic populism that's part of Trumpism, I think that is going to be part of the, the primary debate going forward. And folks like Tom Cotton, who's also a friend of mine, certainly have reflected that with some of their positions on immigration. Okay, let's go back to uh, 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 Lawrence Smith. Uh, if if you forget out the the button and ask your question about international issues, I still I still see it muted. Uh, how about uh, former? Can you hear me? Can oh, you now? hear me now? We got you. We got you. Go ahead. Thank you. That's what happens when you're an older member. You have no technological capability at all. <laughs> First of all, happy birthday, Vic. Good to see you. Hey, Larry. Luke, we never had the opportunity to meet, but it's, uh, I listened to what you had to say, and it's nice to hear somebody who speaks in somewhat logical uh, <laughs> terms. Uh, you know, last night, uh, Kamala Harris talked about our relationship with the foreign countries and our allies, and I believe very strongly that the future of this country is tied inexorably with the future of the world and we need our allies and she talked about what's going on and how our allies are moving away from us and the president and Mike Pence have never basically answered the question of why our allies are, are really searching for other alliances and everybody knows it's true it's, it's, it's common knowledge all around the world what do you think about that? And how do you think that affects our relationship in terms of being a leader of the free world? A question for me or for um, Vic? I, Why don't you start, Luke? Yeah, I mean, look, I have to tell you, one of the things I learned in my Senate campaign is there may be a separation 
from uh, what most of us in uh, sort of uh, leadership circles think about America's foreign policy and what the average American thinks. And um, I kind of come from the traditional perspective that says, hey, and we all recognize America as a leader in the world, but that we have to be, uh, um, you know, hug our allies close. We need to stand tough and strong against against our enemies. And, um, you know, I'm pretty hawkish in, in my career uh, from, from foreign policy perspective. But look, there is a sentiment in America that we're just far too engaged all around the world. And in some ways, this is one of those issues where I think uh, Washington laments as Donald Trump, uh, you know, make statements that seem very unconventional. And frankly, the politics of these issues play pretty well for him. I mean, for example, many of the Democrats that he's picked up in Midwestern swing states are folks that are far more isolationist than what the, 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 um, the policies of our nation have been in either party over the last 30 years. Well, isolationism runs deep in this country. And the further we get from wars, the easier it is to forget about why we won them and how we've been able to prevent other wars from following. I don't think there's any question that the Biden administration is gonna to work to rebuild our alliances in Europe, certainly with NATO. Uh, we've talked about getting into the Paris Accords again. If there's ever been a year to double down on the reality of climate change, this is the year. We see it in the Gulf, we see it in the West with the fires. And, and I don't think there's any doubt that we need to be part of a, of a national an international effort to deal with that. And I think the same is true of the virus. I mean, we can't have the solution of the virus just be one off state versus another. Ultimately, we all end up interacting with each other and reinfecting each other. Most of the people on the East Coast who had the virus came from Italy. So, you know, we really have to be part of an international uh, spectrum if we wish to have uh, the peace that's been so important over the last uh, 75 years. Uh, I don't think there's any question that most Americans don't want us to be paying too much money for these alliances, but I don't think they really want to drop out of them and end up giving power over to uh, the Chinese or the Russians or others who seek to break us up. If anybody ever questioned the value of the NATO alliance, just watch Vladimir Putin's efforts to undermine it. Yeah. And, and you know what, thinking about who's listening to this, and I know we have a, a fair number of diplomats, I think there's a couple things I would want to add. First, I think both Vic uh, um, is, is right. I mean, America's still very, we have a lot of pride. We see ourselves as leaders in the world. We don't like uh, the communist nations and we're ready to stand up to them. But, but I think there's a positive to this uh, sort of isolationist American streak, which is we're not a colonial nation. We, we don't have a, a base of people around um, this nation who want to see us go conquer other areas, occupy them, as many other leading nations have done throughout the course of, of um, human history. And I often say to my friends when I travel on Codell's and the like, is look, if, if you live in the middle of America in rural Iowa or Indiana or Illinois, thousand miles from either border, you would almost have to be in the middle of China to be less affected day to day by what happens in other areas of the world than you are in a place like where I represented in the middle of Indiana. And so I think for our, our leaders who are diplomats and you're trying to figure out how do you massage American policy, I just think people need to understand there is this rising sense that America's spending way too much money and we got plenty of problems in America and we gotta be spending resources there. And so helping our leaders deal with those challenges in our partnerships will be an important part of making sure these alliances continue, which 
everybody on this call certainly believes they should continue. Uh, let's go back to Dennis Eckert. If, uh, if, uh, you can ask your question and, and unmute your phone and, uh, we'll go from there. Uh, it's still, still, still muted. Um, as far as one question, uh, Congressman Messer, I want to ask you about, uh, the vice president. What has his, has been his impact on the administration? He doesn't get a lot of attention. Fox and other networks, they kind of pull away when Mike Pence is giving a speech as opposed to the president. Um, but behind the scenes, what kind of impact has he You know, there's a, um, there's a, a statement in the CEO world that personnel is policy, right? That who you appoint to different positions can dictate the policies that happen in those positions, particularly in the administration. As Vic alluded to earlier, I think that'll be one of the real questions of the early Biden administration. How many appointments does the progressive left get? How many are sort of the now more the you know the Obama administration is basically the center of the of the Democratic Party in, in today's world? So how many folks come from that more maybe reform oriented part of the, the party as well? You know, Mike Pence in his prior life as a member of Congress was a darling of the conservative movement in Washington. And frankly, throughout these administrations, from the EPA to Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, um, there have been uh, leaders that in prior Republican administrations would probably not be in those roles. Policies put forward and everything from healthcare to labor to the environment um, that, you know, frankly, come out of think tanks. And I, I almost laugh at a couple people giggle and say, hey, let's make the left mad and, and bring up this policy. And somehow those policies are the policy of this administration. And and that didn't come from Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, is a very accomplished person, obviously um, achieved a lot in business before he came, but he had not spent all of his life thinking about the nuances of federal policy before he came to office. And that made him very different than almost anybody else who would ever be president. Mike Pence did. Mike Pence read all these policy books and briefing papers. And so I think that's where his biggest influence um, has been. You know, it strikes me, Bob, that the Republican Party's high, highly motivated about not allowing the Democrats to win, but not highly motivated about any policy issues. I mean, frankly, the, the non-platform platform was indicative of that. They don't really have the agenda going forward. We've heard about health care. I tend to agree with John Boehner when he says the Republican Congress has never been able to write a health care bill because, frankly, a number of them don't believe there's a federal role for health care. But I do think that they are animated, motivated by making the liberals mad, by angering the Democrats. And they really don't go beyond that. That's enough for them. Holding on to power is their motivation. And they'll do it in every possible way they can. And they've been, frankly, more effective than people like me would ever hope. <laughs> well, you might, you might, I just do have to say, uh, I disagree with a fair amount of that. And, and one of the things that gives me some hope in Washington in 2021 and moving forward is I think the folks that I talk to personally who are there in Washington of both parties still in office are exhausted by the ability to get things done. And now right, we have right. all these political incentives back home where nobody's going to reward them for being part of bipartisan compromise. But I think the place is starved to actually move the ball forward. And I think the American people are starved for that too. I mean, unfortunately, uh, they may not realize that some sense of a compromise is required in our system to get that done. 
I hope you're right. You're we shall see. I have my doubts, though, but we, we shall see. Um, uh, probably time for one more question. Former member Martin Lancaster has a question about, uh, speaking uh, of the topic, civility in debate. Uh, Congressman Lancaster, if you can unmute and ask your question. He was unmuted, and then he went mute again. Okay, so whatever button you, pissed, you, you press, there you go. Should be good now. This is the best debate I have heard since the campaign started. And I think we should run these two guys for president. Um, but what I want to know is how do we get this kind of civility back in Washington? I think the kinds of uh, debates that we've had, the kinds of uh, charges that have been made are just unbecoming of a democracy, especially this democracy. So is there a way for us to get this kind of civility and perhaps compromise uh, embraced by the Congress? Martin, uh, Martin's an old friend. He's my mother's favorite congressman, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I have to say that I think the former members are doing what they can to create an atmosphere in this town. I mean, we can't all change the minute we are no longer in office. We are the same people, but we start talking to each other, start uh, cooperating on, on common ground that we can find. And I would hope that would uh, translate to the actual sitting members. Um, I do think it really relies on the public to change their demeanor. But as long as we've got these polar opposite media influences where people get an echo chamber of their views and nothing else, uh, it's awfully hard to find common ground, build consensus. But it's certainly the only way this government, this country ever moves forward. Well, um, I think leaders matter. And, mm -hmm. you know, Mike Pence once said, he, as, as he contrasts himself early in his radio show with Rush Limbaugh, he would say, uh, I'm conservative, but I'm not angry about it. Right. And so that's sort of one of his famous quotes. And, and I think you saw a little bit of that last night. And obviously, Donald Trump's style is unlike anything we've ever seen in the modern presidency. But look, I'm not going to give even our last several presidential presidents a complete pass on this. One thing that's different about Joe Biden having come out of this system is I think Joe Biden has the maturity of understanding that there are good and decent people on the other side. And, and it's not enough to just whip the words of being civil. If you don't have that inside of you, it's very hard to actually lead and bring people together. And I'm not sure that our last several presidents before this president have in their heart really known that too, okay? And, and so, you know, I think it will be interesting to see in a Biden presidency, um, sure, he's a partisan. He's had a career where he's somebody who demonstrates from the left. But, but I do believe that when Joe Biden says he thought John McCain is a good man, he really believes it. Right? It's not just something he's saying. And, and so that gives me some hope uh, if, if there's a new, now, you know, if President Trump wins, I think the President Trump has proven after four years, uh, if he hadn't changed by now, he's not likely to change in the next four after that. Luke, I, I love your endorsement of Joe Biden. And I love I'm the not fact that you seem, you seem to be fait accompli. You think it's over. No, I mean, look, I, I think it is important to say to your listeners tonight or today that, um, we're very conventional Washington in the way we analyze this, right? 
the left is convinced there's no chance that Donald Trump can win. By the way, they were convinced four years ago he couldn't. Um, folks on the, on the Republican side realize, hey, it's going to be a heavy slog. And four years ago, a lot of us went to bed the night before the election thinking Donald Trump wasn't going to be the next president. Uh, frankly, there's people who believe Donald Trump went to bed the night before the election thinking he wasn't going to be the next president. And he woke up and he was president. Right. And so I think that anybody who says they know for sure, I've, I've said for months now, the number one way you know that whoever you're talking to knows nothing is if they try to tell you for certain they know what's going to happen in the coming election. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think to double down on your point, there will be Republicans in this administration. There'll be people appointed to very important public offices who are Republicans as indication of how Joe Biden wants to govern. Well, yeah, and just so I'm not being cryptic, I, I just want to say, I think Barack Obama, while very sort of affable in style, was pretty partisan. I think um, Bush had as one of his lead advisors in Karl Rove, a, a, an administration that became very partisan. Um, Bill Clinton, a, a little different, but, but still pretty partisan. And, and so I, I think it'll be, you know, I, I, I want to be happy and have, and have hope. And, you know, uh, let's hope there's, there's opportunity. Well, we've run out of time. This is a great discussion. I always tell my staff to talk to former members of Congress. By and large, they're very smart and they're a little more free to actually say <laughs> actual members of, of Congress. Uh, and, and the predictions of more October surprises, I hope you guys are wrong because it's going to kill my staff. Um, but you know, overall, I thought this was a great discussion. I want to thank the participants and the panelists from FMC's uh, memberships as well as SPF USA's memberships. This has been a great discussion. Remember the next uh, event in this series is on the 23rd. Uh, thanks for all the questions and watching. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks.